You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. It's always nervous when you, they start with a round of applause. Um, but anyway, I'm just going to jump straight in here. So the poor. Um, I want to tell you about Belen Chilo. Uh, Belen Chilo is a lady that I met in Rwanda on one of the handfuls of trips that I've taken with Tear Fund. And her story is certainly lingers with me still. So I went to visit Belenchilo, who lives about two hours south of Kigali, the capital, and we sat in their church and just heard story after story from her community. This is, this is her there. And every one of the stories that we heard all started in the same place. It all started in 1994 with a genocide. They were all shaped by it, when nearly a million Tutsis were slaughtered in Rwanda. Belenchilo was not spared the pain herself of the genocide. Uh, she told me very bravely about how when the soldiers came to her suburb, how they came and quickly rounded up the men, the boys, many of the women, how they locked them in a church and had armed guards at each of the windows and set fire to the church. And she was held there captive as she watched her husband and her children be murdered. She was violently assaulted throughout the genocide, but she, unlike so many, survived. And in the years that followed, um, it was a shell of a country. She went back home to her community, and teachers, doctors, shop assistants were gone. Family, friends, and neighbors had all been killed. And after a few years, there was a bit more stability, and a charity started reaching the widows of the genocide, particularly vulnerable people. And this particular charity offered uh, Belenchilo a house, a home, something that she certainly did not have. And so she took it. She grabbed the opportunity. But this was not in the suburb where she lived. She actually had to move out from Kigali, two hours south, into the rural area. But she was desperate. And she still struggled every month to feed herself. She had these health problems Uh, as a result of the genocide, and so she took the opportunity, and she moved to a community that she did not know. And the house is good. I've been. She took us to visit. The house has bricks. It has glass windows. It has a locked door. It has a roof. It's much better than most houses around her. You can see just pits of it there. But for many years, she was alone. Pete talked about this when we thought about poverty in our own church. She was alone. She was isolated. She didn't have friends or a support community around her. Until one day, a lady from the local church came. Tear Farm, we worked through the local church, and I'll talk more about that later. And she came and knocked on her door and invited her to be part of something called a self-help group. It's a bit similar to a meetup, but there's a little, bit di- little few differences. And uh, they would gather each week in someone's home. And they would gather, they'd open the word together, they'd read God's word, apply it to their lives, they'd pray together, they'd share the challenges of life together, week in, week out. Poor harvest, struggle with school, a lack of money, whatever it may be. And one thing, they would save money together. So they'd start building up this common pot of money. And it always starts very small. For Bell and Chilo, it was 5p a week. They would all have to contribute. And... Um, Belenchilo told me how skeptical she was. Like I said, she was still in great need, but she didn't think this process would make any difference. But she decided to join the group on one condition, 
And the condition was that she would host the group in her home. Because she had been blessed with a house that others had not. And she wanted to share that blessing with others. So they started meeting in her home every week. And over the course of months, she suddenly had this support network around her that she hadn't had in two decades. A support structure of people just looking out for her that she hadn't had for 20 years. And after six months, they'd grown some capital in their group, and she took out her first loan. And the loan is always less than a loan shark that would plunge people into crippling poverty the other thing to say is that the, the, the capital that they have is all their own. There's no seed funding, there's no match funding, there's no outside investment. It's all their own money that they save. It takes longer. She took out her first loan and she bought some benches. If we go on to the next picture, you can see the benches and now some chairs there. That was her first thing that she decided to buy, someone desperate in poverty, so that her friends would no longer sit on the floor, but her friends, when they came around each week, can sit on a bench. The second loan that she took out a year later was to buy a 20 kilo bag of grain so she could resell it at a profit. Very rudimentary business. But the third loan is the loan that sits with me still. And smiling at me, she tells me how the third loan pays for a whole new set of teeth. Because when she was attacked, as she watched her husband and children be murdered, she was hit by the butt of a rifle in the face, smashing all of her teeth. And after 20 years without, she was able to afford some new teeth. But her priority was not herself. Her priority was to bless her community around her, to provide a bench for her friends to come and sit on. After she told me the story, she started showing me around her home, and she took me out back. She took me to where she's now got a bigger business of reselling grain. She took me to the allotment, and Matt, she could teach you and them a lot about farming, uh, <laughs> because she was increasing her yield year on year. She was growing extra to feed herself and to make profit. She was telling me about the friends and community that she has now coached through this process herself. She is not only economically better off, Not only is her health better off, but she has a hope. She has a dignity that has been restored. Her faith in Jesus is strengthened as they meet each week to open his words, to see how it applies to their life, to pray and see God break through in marvelous ways. So if you've not got the message yet, the message today is about our response to the global poor. How does God call us? Pete, in the first week of this series, considered our response to those in our immediate context our local church here. Joe, my colleague from Tear Fund last week, she considered how actually our response to the environment and stewardship of it is linked to those in poverty. And next week, we'll be looking at how we respond to the poor in our own nation and our own community in Ealing. So on uh, week three, I want to get interactive. So very quickly, turn to your neighbor and just tell each other what word or very short phrase you would use to describe poverty. Quickly turn, what word or what phrase do you use to describe poverty? I see there's kind of tepid conversation, Uh, so let's see how this goes. I'm not here to catch anyone out, I just want to know what people think. Anyone want to say the words that they said or their neighbor said? Hungry? Suffering? Sadness, despair, 
lack of what you need. Okay, we could continue. Maybe you resonate with some of those words. The World Bank in the 90s, so it's a little bit old, surveyed 60,000 people who were living in poverty to describe their own poverty. And I just want to read out some of what they've said to see how ours matches up. A lady in Uganda said, when one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She uh, has no food, so there is famine in her house. No clothing and no progress in her family. For someone else, they said, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Someone else said, During the past two years, we've not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. I wonder how ours matched up. I think they're quite similar on the whole. Maybe more emphasis on things that people need. Brian Fickett, I quote a little bit today. I have borrowed much of what uh, I'm saying from him. He's an American author. He's written a book called When Helping Hurts, and I would recommend anyone who's been challenged in this series to read it. It is a phenomenally challenging read. And he says this about the World Bank study. He says, poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. North American audiences, and maybe us as well, tend to emphasize a lack of material things, such as food, money, clean water, medicine, housing. This mismatch between many outsiders' perceptions of poverty and the perceptions of poor people themselves have a devastating consequence for poverty alleviation efforts. To simply put, I would say our default worldview in the global north or in the west is that poverty is deficit. It's characterized by a lack of resource, opportunity, education. And I believe, um, but I believe to really understand poverty, we've got to go back to God's word, not academic study. So if we go back to the story of creation, I think we understand that God created us for relationship. That is why God created us, to have relationship firstly with him. And even before creation, what we understand is that God existed as the Trinity, in perfect relationship with one another. And he created us and invited us into that relationship with him. But God also intends for us to have healthy relationships with one another. You know, horizontal. That we would uh, be able to love one another and support one another. Thirdly, a healthy relationship with the way that we see ourselves. And see ourselves the way that God sees ourselves. And lastly, a healthy relationship with the environment, with God's creation. However, when we look to the creation story and we look at when sin entered the world, what we see is that these four relationships broke. Is that no longer were we right with God, actually he cast us from the garden. No longer were we right with one another. There was enmity, there was fighting, there was jealousy and envy between brothers. No longer did we see us the way that God sees us. Because we either put ourselves at the center of our own life, pushing God out, or we see ourselves as an outcast or a reject, and that's not how God sees us either. 
And lastly, a broken relationship with God's creation. From moving from stewards of what God created to corruptors of it for our own comfort and our own profit. So if we follow this narrative, if we follow this idea through about what the Bible describes as poverty, it's poverty as brokenness, not poverty as deficit. And both Pete and Joe framed it in this way over the last two weeks. Pete, in talking about the church, talked about those who are lonely and isolated. It's not just economic poverty. And so if we understand poverty in this way of deficit, we have some problems. Because what it automatically does is it divides the world into two. It divides the world into the haves and the have-nots. So the haves, you have cash, you have resources, you have education, you have connections. And you see a world where there is those who do not have those things. And so through your good intentions, you go, I want to plug the gap. Whereas we have the have-nots. We have the have-nots, and they do not have cash, they do not have education, and they do not have resources. So they see some haves come into their community. Maybe it's a two-week mission trip. Maybe it's a camera crew to get some stories. And they see this group turn up, and they build a building in front of their house. (laughs) Probably didn't ask. They build a church. They dig a well. They put a lick of paint on the school. They get their selfie, and they leave. I am being particularly caricature, but it is not too far from reality. That when we understand poverty is deficit, what do we try to do? We try to make ourselves the hero. (laughs) I enjoy being a hero. Anyone else, be brave. We enjoy knowing that we make a difference. We enjoy seeing something tangible because of what we have done. Again, Brian Fickett says this, Starting with a focus on needs amounts to starting a relationship with low-income people by asking them, what is wrong with you? How can I help you? Given the nature of most poverty, it is difficult to imagine more harmful questions to both low-income people and ourselves. Starting with such questions initiates a very dynamic that we need to avoid, the dynamic that confirms the feelings that we are superior, that they are inferior, and that they need us to fix them. So we need to move away from being a hero to really engage ourselves with what makes a difference. We need to not hold too strongly how we're emotionally connected to what difference is being seen. We need to move away from some good intentions, and they're good in themselves even if they don't amount to much because we've done something, to actually engage ourselves, to really understand how, as God's people, is he calling us to engage with the world's poorest to make a difference in their lives. So let me go back to Belen Chilo, the lady whose story has lingered with me. In the most crude and calculating way, what difference has made in her life? She has bought some benches, she has got some grain and started a rudimentary business, and she has got some new teeth. In three years, that's what's happened. We could do that a lot quicker. <laughs> we could do that so much quicker. We could put a freight container outside and fill it with stuff. We could get benches, old sewing machines, watering cans. We could fill this freight container in a Sunday. We could, now I don't think we've got any dentists, but I know we've got quite a few doctors, midwives, nurses. We could send a team, set up a clinic, do all sorts of things within a week. We could write a check. And giving is good, and I'm going to come to that. (laughs) We could write a check and tell some people what to do. They could be Rwandans, and they could be told, go do this for your country. 
But I would argue, when we pack up and leave and either go back to Kigali or go back to London, what difference has truly been made? Because Bell and Chilo's bench will break. And I think her smile that she wore her teeth with would not be there. Because it's not her material circumstances that have simply changed. It's her whole life. She, dignity, hope, and faith has been restored. She's been able to see how God has given her abilities to respond to her own poverty and not have to rely on someone else to come in and do something for her. The good news is transformation is taking place. Joe gave some graphs last week. In the last 20 years, extreme poverty has been halved. That is phenomenal. This is good news. This is such good news that those living in extreme poverty with a lack of income or access to education or healthcare is being reduced, not by a percentile, but by half. And that's not one person. That's not just tier funds. That is the collective effort of government policies, of businesses that create jobs, of, of everyday people and churches and charities who are committed to making a difference. Ourselves at Tier Fund this year, we mark 50 years since we were born, born, birthed. And we were born out of a crisis when Christians in the UK saw uh, a famine in Biafra, which is now northern Nigeria. And they responded generously. And 50 years on, God is still using us to be his salt and light in the world. And our strapline, for those in marketing, our strapline is not a marketing tool. It's something that identifies who we are following Jesus where the need is greatest. I want to pull out one word from that. We follow Jesus. Abby read from John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. We do not believe that we take Jesus into broken communities. (laughs) We do not believe that we package him and take him and reveal him to these communities. We believe that when Jesus went to the cross, when he died on that cross, he went for the least, the last, and the lost. Jesus went to the cross for the places of brokenness in our world, and he is in those places of brokenness. He's where a child is being trafficked. He is where a mother is being abused. He's in the places of conflict and war, and he invites us, church. (laughs) He says, come, Come and be my light in this place. His light is shining, but come and, come and reveal it to people. We don't take him with us. He invites us to those places. So I want to draw out three principles that we need to hold on to when thinking about the global poor. And then I want to draw out three responses that maybe we need to take today. First of all, here's a definition. Material poverty alleviation is working to reconcile these four foundational relationships so that people can fulfill their callings of glorifying God by working and supporting themselves and their family with the fruit of that work. It's about them being released. So three principles, and I'll have to do this quite quickly. They could each be a preach. Work through the church. You may be an atheist here. Genuinely, you may be. You may not be convinced about your faith, but what you cannot deny is the local church is the biggest civil society network on earth. Bigger than any government, business, or organization, the local church is in every country. The local church is spoken in nearly every language. It gathers people of every level of society into one place. 
So even if you're just an economics professor, you see the sense in working through the local church. But the local church is also there from the beginning and through to the end. A tier fund project has a beginning and it has an end. There will be a moment when we start and when we stop. The local church is there throughout. So why would we come in and leave when we can equip and resource the people who are there to bring transformation to their own communities? My second principle, start with what God has already provided. So coming back to these questions that I've already raised, like what is wrong with you? How can I help? They're the wrong place to start because we start with the need. What we should start with is what God has already provided and try to understand what it is that we have. It may be small. My colleague went to Rwanda. He met a farmer who heard this training and he went back at night, sat on his land and thought and prayed, God, what have you given me? His land was the bit at the end of the village where there was a huge swamp. And he was saying to God, what have you given me? And he prayed for days and he suddenly saw what God had given him. He'd given him the opportunity to turn a swamp into a fish farm. So that's what he did. He took three months digging out a swamp, turning it into a fish farm. This created a business for him. It provided food for the family, education for his kids, and it worked. So he got five other families to replicate it and do it again and again and again in the rest of the swamp. So now that they are working their own way out of poverty, what they thought was an obstacle was an opportunity because we start with what we have, not what they need. And the kicker here, I love a kicker at the end of a story, is that malaria in that community was 80%. Why? Because the mosquitoes bred in the swamp. So suddenly when there's all this fish, the mosquito larvae were being eaten. So now 20% of the community have malaria, not 80%. How phenomenal is that? It is good. Okay, I can get carried away. (laughs) Thirdly, do not do for people what they can do for themselves. Avoid paternalism. There are moments and there are instances when we need to respond. I've been talking a lot about development. There are days and weeks when we need to give someone food. There are moments when someone has lost everything because of a natural disaster and they need immediate support. But we have to move on from giving immediate support quickly to rehabilitation and development. We can't stick with this model of relief because it creates dependency, it creates need, it traps people in this hopelessness of thinking, how am I going to be used? So we should not use relief as the default in every circumstance. That should be the like, last chance, really, not the first response. So there's three responses for you to think about when you're thinking about how we respond to the poor. And of course, I'm talking globally, but this is locally as well. Thinking about families, thinking about friends, thinking about neighborhoods, and we'll be doing this more next week, thinking about how we respond and use these principles in our own community. In Micah 6, 8, this is a verse that, oh man, it's just like fuel for those who work at Tear Funds. You might be familiar with it. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Powerful words. So as people sitting in West London, what are some things that we can do today? I'm just boiling it down to three words. Act, uh, pray, and give. That's what God invites us to do today. So act justly. God has given us our voice. We live in an interconnected world where business and policy in the UK and EU hugely shape the developing world. 
And over the last 10 years as Tier Fund, we've seen 300 policies at local, national, international level changed because of advocacy, of engaging Christians, speaking to their MP and saying, what about this? What about the poor? Why do we need to change? So one of those that sticks out to me is for someone like Belenchulo in Rwanda. The scenario is, and this is a very typical scenario, an extractive company from the UK, someone who does a lot of mining, can go and register in Rwanda. They can go and pay a local government official a bribe very easily to acquire the mining rights for maybe a copper or tantalum uh, mine. Tantalum, that's something that you all have on yourself at the moment. It's a precious metal in nearly every smartphone. And so they would go to the local official, they would pay a bribe, and they would get the rights. And it would force the community who've always lived there for generations out. There'd be no compensation, there'd be no support as they move on, they're gone. And their home is gone, but also what it means is they're probably going to end up working in the mine, which is not a good place to work. So what have we done? This was about four years ago. We lobbied the UK government. Christians across the UK wrote to their MP, met with their MP. They signed a petition. People in the developing world did the same. Their voice was given um, a platform as they spoke to the EU, as they spoke to the UN. It's not just us speaking for them, it's us releasing their voice as well. And there's now a new law called Publish What You Pay, so that any EU-based extractive industry has to publish every payment to a local government for a mining rights. And this is not so that we can sit here in the comfort of West London and go, hey, what about that? What this does is it means someone like Bell and Chilo, if this ever happened in her community, can say to her local government, that £200,000 our road that connects us to the town, which is keeping us in poverty because we can't trade, we need it fixed. Our our school has no teacher, we need a teacher. Our hospital, we're running out of medicine. So we get to achieve some of the aims that we're setting out to achieve, those material things, but we do it in a way in which it releases the government to serve its people and not rely on Western donations. So I'd encourage you, think about these campaigns when they come around, they do work. They do succeed. You joining something on uh, you know, an online platform does make a difference. It may be even that those of you working in business, maybe supply chain, maybe extractive industries, maybe all sorts, you need to think about lobbying your own company. If you see something at your work and it makes you feel uncomfortable in the way that you abuse others or manipulate others, maybe you need to speak up to your own employer and make a difference from the inside. Second then, so that was act. Secondly, give. You would be forgiven, you know, for what I've said, thinking that you can get away from this one today. Surely I'm not going to ask you to give. I am. You've got leaflets on your seats. But I want you to think about the way that you give. When a disaster's on the screens, it's in our hearts. When we see a tsunami wash away someone's livelihoods, when we see a drought dry up someone's income, when we see war force someone from their home, our heart responds to give to that relief effort and continue to do so. But the story like Bell and Chilo, you'll be not forgiven for asking, well, what have you done? There are people who give regularly each month to Tear Fund sitting amongst us, and you're probably quizzing me going, look, it's a good story, but how has my money actually made a difference here? Simply, we paid for a facilitator. Your money went towards paying for a trainer. 
We spent days and weeks identifying people, Christians, in those contexts who can be those who can replicate this model in more and more churches. It's not very sexy. (laughs) It's not very tangible. Your money has gone towards someone's salary. It's gone towards someone's motorbike, maybe their fuel, their lunch, a photocopier so they can make copies of the manual that they use in communities. But this makes a difference. With that mustard seed of investment, we see businesses created. We see kids in schools. We see people fed. We see people living with dignity and hope restored. For those of you who want evidence, I've got evidence. We started this 15 years ago in Ethiopia. We started in a context just like this, these self-help groups. We asked in a church with probably this many people for eight volunteers, and eight women put their hands up and said, yeah, I'll give it a go, not knowing what this self-help group approach that I've described would be like. These women were the poorest of the poor. I genuinely mean that. But they started faithfully saving 5p every week. Their husbands mocked them. Women are the ones who are changing the world. I have seen this again and again. Women take the initiative. They're willing to take a risk. They're willing to give it a go where men just scoff at them. It's women who are doing something remarkable in these countries. So they started gathering, and it started. I won't do the full story. I haven't got time. With just 5p a week, these small emergency loans like Bellinchilo. 15 years on, these women, one of them is now an elected member of parliament. They, many of them have supported their own kids, not through school, but through university. One of those first groups st- stay as a group, and they've set up their own international haulage company, employing their husbands. Genuine story. Their husbands mock them. They're now their employees. <laughs> these were women who were living off scraps of food from the town dump. It's not a metaphor. It's true. They were living off scraps of food from the town dump, and they are now leaders in politics and commerce in their country. It's taken time. Fifteen years ago, we started with eight volunteers in Ethiopia. We now have over 20,000 self-help groups in Ethiopia. That's 1.8 million people directly involved in these groups, changing their nation. It is, a vet. it is so good. <laughs> and that's not only in Ethiopia. We've replicated this in eight other countries, including Rwanda. I love a kicker. I'm about to ask you to give. Per person, this costs five pounds. To train, equip, and resource someone to use the God-given abilities that he's already put in them costs five pounds. And long-term, we see transformational change. So I do want to ask you to give regularly today. You've got a leaflet. You can pick it up. Why not pick it up? I recognize that some of you already do support tier funds. I mean it. Pick it up. I think there's something when you pick it up because it's on the floor. And I want to, without any embarrassment, ask you to give to tier funds. To give regularly to tier funds. As a church, we have generously supported tier funds together, corporately, but there is some discipline in choosing to say, I want some money each month to go to support the world's poorest and to pray as a family. So if you want to complete that today, you can give it to me. You can do it quietly and leave it in the purple box at the back and I'll grab that. You might want to pray about it as a family. So if today you want to support Tier Fund financially, you've got your bank details and you're in, complete the form. Put your bank details down, sign that direct debit. If you want to pray about it, if you want to think about it, 
please just leave your forms uh, with your name and your telephone number. Um, I won't, but one of my colleagues will call you this week. And I've talked about good intentions being a bad thing today, but I also know that good intentions can fade away quite quickly when we go have a picnic lunch after church. So maybe just leaving some details today will just mean that actually there's some follow-through on this as well. So my last point is pray. Be informed, be specific, be bold in your prayers. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that prayer, what we're praying is restore all relationships. God to yourself, to each other, to myself, and to the environment. Would you restore all relationships when we say the words, your kingdom come? And we need to get better at praying bold, big prayers. And very quickly, I just want to equip you with some ways that you can pray. If we just go to that final slide. Each week, uh, we, well, each quarter, we release this. It's a prayer diary. You can have this for those who like paper next to your kettle for the morning or next to your bedside table. And each week, just each day, just be given a snapshot to equip you in your prayers, to get in a daily rhythm of praying. There's bulletin emails. And this isn't just Tear Fund. I, don't want to, I work for Tear Fund, but it could be Open Doors. It could be Christian Aid. It could be a small charity that your friend works for that send weekly emails as well. Just do something. <laughs> Pray for someone um, weekly. Get in a rhythm. For those of you who like technology, you can download a new app called Prayer Mate. And what this um, app is, is a whole catalog of publishers who want to push you daily prayer requests, including Tear Fund and many others. And lastly, all of our meetups are coordinated through WhatsApp. We can't avoid it. <laughs> you can try, but you won't succeed. Uh, everything now feels like it's through WhatsApp. You can sign up to receive prayer alerts when a disaster strikes through WhatsApp by attending your um, update to that phone number there behind me. I just, they're easy ways that you can pray, so please pray. And to close, Jesus is the only way. <laughs> Throughout, I've been talking about brokenness. We don't reconcile, Jesus reconciles. We can't make a way to the Father, Jesus has done that. We cannot, through sheer will, be good with one another when there's enmity and strife. The Holy Spirit does a work, softening our hearts. We cannot choose to live radical daily lives in the way that we engage with the environment without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made a way. So I want to thank you for listening. And uh, if you've got any questions, any thoughts, any comments, please do speak to me or give me those forms later. Thank you.